Hey, I'm Scott. And I'm Chris. And this is Doxologic, where we help you think with your Bible. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Doxa Logic. And Scott, the rain has been falling recently. It yes. has been a pretty intense in our neck of the woods. How how are you holding up up there in Lincoln? And uh, I mean that night any destruction? Where, no, no destruction. Oh, really? Yeah. Thankfully, um, <laughs> we got a, a piece of <laughs> a roof shingle falling onto our grass from a house I can't identify because I look at the other roofs and I'm like, yeah, that's not the same but somehow that wind blew something pretty far yeah, i had friends that uh, you would know too that said they were uh, registering over 70 miles an hour for like several minutes at a time yeah there was a lot going on hope uh well you lost power i heard as we well. lost power for a for while time. i yeah, was thinking of a friend not, with a fence business man these are the best days the only guy who's excited about these type of things is yeah, him yeah the phone going <laughs> off the hook yeah yeah yep. hope you guys have uh been able to stay dry though in some pretty intense weather and we have got for you uh what i would argue could be a pretty intense episode depending on where you're coming from, Scott, if you've got background in the Roman Catholic Church, maybe distant memory or maybe even into your adult years, you may have some very strong feelings about, uh, we might just, you know, at times call it the RCC, the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided to cover this in part because, uh, first of all, it's such a huge topic. This will be introductory even with two episodes, right? This will be not surface in the level of um, lacking depth, but it'll be an introductory um a couple of episodes to what is a big topic, but we decided to do this because we have fielded now at least eight questions in the last several months. Some of them we're going to read. We want to make sure people know that we do. Um, we track those mailbag uh, um, comments and questions as they come in and really appreciate it because it helps us know what you and I have thought about in the past is right over the target with what people need help understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is a big one. I mean, um, when you think about Christianity in general, you could basically throw all of Christianity into a few major buckets. There's three major branches of Christianity. You've got Roman Catholicism, you've got Eastern Orthodoxy, and you've got Protestantism. And the largest of all the branches of Christianity, with about 1.3 billion followers worldwide as of 2021, uh, is Catholicism. That is one out of every seven people worldwide. Would identify. Would identify, yes. Okay. And so it's a big deal. Uh, in the U.S., it's about 22% of the population identifies Catholicism as their religion. And so we're talking about something that if you don't have background to it, you're one relationship away from a conversation yeah. with someone who does. Right. Um, and then a lot of what's coming in as well is, uh, what are those distinctive doctrinal differences, and how do I share the gospel with a friend who who's from a Roman Catholic background, maybe even some wondering, do I need to? Right. What is the difference? And so hopefully we want to get to the bottom of that today. Yeah. We're going to, um, like I had mentioned, have two episodes on this. We're going to do a, a brief, uh, and because the history is about 2,000 years, it'll be a very brief sketch of history, the big kind of uh, pegs of history in the Roman Catholic Church, but then really focusing on doctrine, uh, um, reading, and, and helping summarize for you a lot of the doctrinal distinctives of the Roman Catholic Church, and then give some short Protestant responses in the first episode. And in the second, we're 
going to talk more modern day Catholicism, more uh, how do I share the gospel, uh, how concerned should I be about certain things where my Catholic friends do practice or do believe in some things? Where's the line to say that that's actually not that's not Christianity at all versus that's just maybe a misunderstanding or that's a tradition of the Catholic Church? How how bothered, how concerned should people be? And mm-hmm. so there is a lot to get to, and we're going to do our best to help you and actually equip you um, with a couple of resources in the show notes as well. Um, and maybe we'll uh, do that toward the end to talk about uh, those because there are several very good places you can go to keep learning more. But Scott, let's just let's jump into the yeah. uh, brief history. Where would a Roman Catholic? Um, where does Roman Catholicism say um, the the church began? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they would maintain that it was established by Jesus when he gave direction to the Apostle Peter as the head of the church, they would say. And of course, they're getting out of that out of Matthew 16, 18. So if you have any knowledge or awareness of Roman Catholicism, you are familiar with this passage. Um, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so the Roman Catholic Church would establish that uh, their origins were uh, all the way back to the Apostle Peter and Jesus' words in Matthew uh, 16. Uh, As you fast forward into uh, post-death and resurrection of Jesus, we're talking about the apostolic age, right? So we're talking about the church had 12 apostles. They began a missionary uh, work. Uh, The apostle Paul and some of his missionary work returns to Rome. And uh, and the real big thing is the reputation of Rome uh, as the center of the Christian church uh, likely had its origins in this period. Um, Paul dies in 68, probably by beheading upon order of Nero. And so there's a lot of connection there. And uh, we just see that kind of coming forth from the apostolic age. Moving into the next period, we call it the anti-Nicene period, which is about 100 AD to 325. And when I say anti-Nicene, I mean pre the Nicene Council. And uh, obviously the Nicene Council was a big, big deal. Um, Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon, um, is kind of credited in a sense with the idea of some of the basic structures of the Catholic Church being established with some level of a system of governance and regional branches under the direction of Rome, and uh, kind of basic tenets of Catholicism were becoming formalized, um, involving as well that kind of absolute rule of faith. So you're starting Mm -hmm. to see its formation taking place, but then a kind of pivotal piece in this was in 313, Constantine legalized Christianity. And in 330, moved the Roman capital to Constantinople, uh, leaving the Christian church to be the central authority in Rome, essentially. And so that's a big piece of the early, early church history. And then leading from that, uh, he convened the Council of Nicaea, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Constantine was very important in, in bringing, um, while it wasn't going to be every single church leader, it was a, a great mass uh, of the church in the early 4th century coming to the Council of Nicaea um, by, by Constantine I. And so... Uh, uh, going from the Council of Nicaea, as much as there is to be said about each of these councils, again, just trying to tracking history here, 380 AD, Roman Catholicism becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. So you 
you think how fast that's moved from legalizing Christianity. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Right. Uh, that it is legally permitted is 313, and within 67 years, if I've got that right, you have now got it Good as math. the... As, it's, thank you. It is uh, post-Constantine, this is after him, but you've got it established as the official religion in the Roman Empire, and so uh, that is quite the turn in the 4th century. In uh, in 551 AD, we have the, uh, the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, the head of the church in Constantinople was declared to be uh, the head of the eastern branch of the church in equal authority to the Pope, and that's going to be very important as we get uh, another 500 or so years forward. But that's the Council of Chalcedon, uh, and then in 590, Pope Gregory I initiates his papacy. Yeah, that's a big deal. This is a big one, because according to the Moody Handbook of Theology, the, the official beginning of the Roman Catholic Church occurred in 590 with Pope Gregory I. And, and I imagine, you know, uh, kind of a historian of Roman Catholicism would want to say, no, it begins with Peter and Jesus. And we would say, well, uh, but the, the the establishment of his papal authority is significant in that period of time in 590, and mm -hmm. so that really starts to more concretize the Roman Catholic Church in 590. Fast-forwarding to the early uh, to mid-7th century, in 632, the prophet Muhammad dies, and following um, his death, the rise of Islam and a broad conquest of much of Europe ensues, including the persecution and removal of the Catholic Catholic Church, uh, all Catholic Church heads, I should say, uh, besides those in Rome yep. and Constantinople. So then this is hundreds of years of conflict up until uh, the year 1054, okay? So in 1054, this is a formal split or schism in the Catholic Church between the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox Church. That's a big date. Um, you know, I my kid's song is in my head because yeah, they memorize the all the stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. So in ten fifty four the church split and um now you start to see two uh divergent paths being taken uh based on some convictional issues and some of that we'll cover. A lot of that we're just gonna give you a, a quick overview of. Uh, but to continue on sort of this broad brushstrokes of, of history, because we really want to get to the doctrine, you start to get into, by the 13th century, the Inquisition begins, uh, which was, of course, an attempt to suppress religious heretics and convert non-Christians, and uh, various forms of the Inquisition, which, of course, was brutal in many ways, would remain for several hundred years. And uh, and just, again, this kind of period is, you know, Middle Ages, um, all of that. The next major significant... And and, and this may be up with 1054 AD, the church split, uh, you know, the, the one you mentioned in 380, uh, this one's big. 1517, of course, we know Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door, uh, establishing basically an argument against some Roman Catholic doctrines and practices and effectively marking the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And that's huge. While while he did not understand the importance of what he was doing with right. that that ninety five theses, or that it, 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 it took years, even for him, 
to come to understand that this is not going to be a, a reform from the inside. This is going to be because of how he was treated. It was going to be a new reformation, a which new is actually work. interesting because he desired initially that it be a reform from the inside. Right. So it was never actually the idea of wanting to split away, but to always work in so far mm-hmm. as you're able to reform the church from the inside. But in time, it would prove that that would not be the case. And within a mere 17 years, uh, as Martin Luther continues, and by the way, he represents I mean, dozens of other very influential people in different nations in this Protestant sure. Reformation, uh, remembering that Protestant really has to do with protest. It was a protest against certain doctrines and practices uh, in the Catholic Church, but the, the Protestant Reformation is well underway by 1534 when King Henry VIII uh, of England declares himself to be the supreme head of the church in England, and so he severs the Anglican church from the Roman Catholic church, and so you've got continual, call them splinters or splits, so that's 1534, and then you have a period of time not long after, 1545 to about 1563, which you would call the the counter-reformation of uh, Catholicism. So they're Um, firing back at some of the the influence that the reformers had with uh, some doctrinal pushing against, if you will, of the Roman Catholic Church, and now this Catholic counter-reformation begins, and the Council of Trent is huge in that. Yeah. Council of Trent uh, issues several, uh, well, quite a few, key statements and clarifies the Church's doctrine uh, around Scripture, uh, or what the biblical canon is in general, how Scripture is to be viewed and interpreted, uh, matters of original sin, justification, salvation, the sacraments, the Mass, uh, the veneration of saints. I mean, we're, we're going to get to many, but not all of that that I just listed off, but Trent is a is, um, one of three of the most significant in the last 500 years, at least. Uh, councils in which statements are made that are um, declarative of what it means to be a Roman Catholic mm-hmm. in the Council of Trent, followed by... That'll, that really quick, that yeah. will become important in our second episode, yeah. because we're going to talk about the difference between identifying as Roman Catholic versus believing what Roman Catholics believe. Mm, and to your sure. point, the Council of Trent is the, the uh, major influence in the shaping of and establishing Roman Catholic doctrine yeah. Officially, yeah, and then uh, you know, recognizing again, we're leaping far, far forward here with certainly much happening in between. But um, when it comes to the three most important written. Uh, uh, well, councils that produce so many writings. After the Council of Trent, you have 1870 and the First Vatican Council, uh, which was hold, which uh, held that the Pope's decisions are beyond reproach. So uh, essentially, this is where you get that p- uh, papal infallibility, consider the word of God when he's operating in a certain capacity. That's the First Vatican Council. That was very ostracizing at the time to uh, the, the, the strength of the language of the First Vatican Council was distancing itself largely from Protestant churches. However, in less than 100 years, by the 1960s, the Second Vatican Council was reaffirming a lot of Catholic doctrine, and yet their tune was changing about how they saw Protestants. They would call them separated brethren as opposed to uh, anathematizing Protestants, anathematizing meaning like, may he be dead to me, uh, or excommunication. And so you've got... a you more conciliatory cons- there you step go. in that second. Conciliatory Vatic- is a good word. Yeah, for the Vatican Council. But I think the good news about this is we're covering 2,000 years in about 10 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. But 
those are the key um, kind of stopping points in the history. And so should someone want to kind of look up any of those events, even the key ones that we mentioned, you will be able to develop mm-hmm. a very kind of uh, a robust understanding of the development of the Roman Catholic Church. Particularly for someone wanting to reach out and be able to evangelize a Roman Catholic, who, particularly a Roman Catholic who you're convinced is, is not in Christ, doesn't know the gospel, you, you need to help, uh, you might need to help them know some of their own history. So certain councils, um, do you know the Roman Catholic Church dogmatically believes the following? They may not have ever heard it, they may not know that's the official teaching, and then with an open Bible you may very well be able to say, uh, here, here's why, as a Protestant, this is so concerning um, to help them. So yeah, that's, uh, I hope, a helpful, though brief flyover. But Scott, we, uh, as we have in other episodes uh, like this, after giving a history of something, we do want to focus on uh, matters of doctrine. And, and while we could really um, list uh, in any kind of order for different reasons uh, a variety of things. I, I think it's important to say we're going to start from the center and move our way out. Um, Do- doctrinally speaking. Doctrinally okay. from the center of what was the center of the Protestant Reformation and really what is still the center of the issue between Protestants and uh, Catholics uh, today. And I would say that it's Scripture and justification, the doctrine of justification and really the Doctrine of Scripture mm-hmm. uh, are are the two. Uh, you know, people can go back and forth on. No, oh, it was justification. No, it was Scripture. Here's the thing: it, it's not debated that these two are at the core mm-hmm. of um, why the Reformation was so necessary and why the reformers were so passionate about uh, the reform that was needed. Yeah, there was some overlap there as well because when you're talking about the doctrine of Scripture, you're also talking about authority. Where does sure. authority mm-hmm. lie, and then what authority bears its weight on doctrine? doctrinal positions, like the most important one we're going to address is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Yeah. That, that piece is huge, that word alone. So right. we'll, we'll go there. Uh, scripture, justification, we'll talk about the church, the sacraments, and the papacy. And then we'll have In to this stay episode. tuned for episode two. That's right. That's yeah. right. Let's let's get started here again, sort of from the center on out here. Scripture, particularly as it pertains to divine revelation, uh, a Roman Catholic Roman Catholic doctrine is that authoritative revelation from God consists of two tightly connected streams, which are namely Scripture and tradition. Uh, this was made clear at the Council of Trent in 1545, uh, and their catechism states both Scripture and and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and um, reverence. And we would say, uh, just at the outset here, I would would like to say that it's not the idea of tradition having an influence in our understanding right. of good. That's church good. history yep. and of doctrine and how has this doctrine and this scripture been been biblically you know put together theologically so this is not uh, we are not, we can't be off the rocker in comparison to the, the ones that have come before us right, right? we are yeah. not pitting scripture against tradition um, in opposition to what Roman Catholics would yeah. do but they but because ultimately they're going to put scripture and tradition on equal footing we would argue there's no such thing as equal footing. Tradition will end up trumping Scripture in some ways. Uh, Roman Catholics also have a different Old Testament. Many people know this as the Apocrypha. Uh, it's an additional seven books beyond the 39 of the Old Testament. Uh, is it Tobit? Do you know how to... 
I don't know exactly, to be honest. That sounded so good, Chris. Tobit and Judith, my friend Judith. <sighs> I've always just and called the it Tobit, of... but it okay. could not. It could just be. That could be the English way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying here, Scott. You're doing great. The Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, <laughs> Baruch, and First and Second Maccabees. I'm so glad you you took that instead of me. That's so great. <laughs> uh, there are additional sections in Esther and in Daniel in the Apocrypha as well. Um, very importantly, and and yes, briefly, but important. These are not a part of the Bible of Jesus. You, you do not have Christ in any place quoting from these, nor do you have the apostles. Now, we're going to not you know, uh, um, have an apologetic against the Apocrypha here, but just to say that in their Scripture, they've got more than the Protestants would say belong in the, the actual 66 books of the Bible. Yep. So that's kind of an overview of divine revelation, uh, what they see as two equal authorities with Scripture and tradition, as well as some additional books that we would typically, when you ask questions about the Apocrypha, that's what they're adding to the Old Testament. When it comes to divine inspiration... So in Vatican II, they worded it that the Scriptures have teaching without error that truth which God wanted put into sacred writings for the sake of salvation... So the issue would be the only subject in which the scriptures are said to speak inerrantly is with salvation. Salvation. Okay. Yeah. And um, you know, many cardinals since then have claimed the Bible has errors. So it's it's interesting that they're gonna hold fast to an inerrant component. Uh, yeah, dynamic. here's some, I know I, I believe in divine inspiration, we'll say many Catholics, but if they're aware enough of what something like the Vatican II would say, there's a qualifier there. And and, and we would simply say that that qualifier sure matters because they're going to be willing. Uh, many, many cardinals, which are one of the leadership positions in the church, yeah, um, have claimed there are heirs of various kinds, historical or even theological. And so you've got, uh, you, you certainly have a liberal um, branch nowadays of the Catholic Church and one way you get to a liberal branch uh, of any denomination is by beginning to erode a more robust or even you know full-throated endorsement of the fully inspired in every sense of the word, the, the plenary, the words top to bottom, every single one uh, being inspired, but they're going to qualify that. What about interpretation, Scott? Yeah, so uh, Roman Catholics teaching that Jesus communicated orally to his disciples who communicated it orally to their successors is a big piece of their tradition bent, why Mm -hmm. they hold it so highly. And they'll just say that this tradition has been passed on and it's been maintained by the Roman Catholic teaching office, which is called the Magisterium, which they're the ones that uh, essentially get to um, teach that and... They're proclaiming doctrines based on it. And so, for example, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says, quote, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, that stuff passed on orally, has been entrusted to the living teaching office, listen to this, of the church alone, right? So they're going to claim sole... Right of authority over the interpretation of Scripture. That has been given, to continue the quote, to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome, end quote. So this is a big, big piece of how they understand interpretation to work. They have the final say and are essentially the authority on the interpretation of Scripture. Yeah, such that... um 
you've got this responsibility within the church hierarchy. The, the, the ability and the responsibility of interpreting, interpreting Scripture follows through the magisterium, and I just think, Scott, this helps make sense of uh, many testimonies I know I've heard in this church, um, heard and or read, uh, uh, but about, I grew up Catholic, I never... I, I never read my Bible. I never really th- knew that it was so important if I was a Christian to be reading my Bible because we'll do it for you. Now, I'm not saying every Catholic goes there, but it makes sense of why many end up with this uh, lacking uh, knowledge of the Scriptures directly themselves because it is completely dependent on the Church. And we're going to talk in a little bit about—actually, uh, we could even go there now, maybe about the the issue of the opposite error. There is an opposite error to avoid, which is I get to be the uh, arbiter of what the interpretation of the Bible is, right? We're not anti-tradition or anti Church authority helping and from the Protestant side. The so the Protestant way the, the pendulum swings to the other yes, side is got, you could summarize it maybe to give a really practical example yeah. is it can swing all the way over to everyone's interpreting the Bible for themselves. And everyone's equal. Yeah. And the ability and to do and that. And it's it's the Bible that study that says, you know, well, what does that what does the passage mean to you? And so that is almost like uh, in a sense, like a, a distant application that s- when you swing the pendulum. Yep ends up there, right? So you go from the Roman Catholic, another piece about the Roman Catholic background, if you're talking to people that come from a Roman Catholic background and some uh, more kind of formal church upbringings and stuff, they will not even have heard or understood the Bible even taught in the church because they're teaching it in Latin on top of that, right? And there's history to that, and we may touch on that a little bit, but on top of it being reserved for the magisterium to be the uh, arbiters of interpretation, you've also got that it was that in many churches for a long time, Latin was exclusively the language it was taught in. So if you didn't even understand Latin, there was no chance that you were going to even pick up what was happening in the in the mass, yeah, and so as a as a uh, kind of a, a brief rebuke to the common Roman Catholic teaching, the Protestants would say ha- have said, still say to this day, divine revelation is Scripture only. That the tradition of the church, the traditions of how uh, passages have been uh, you know put together or interpreted, all of that which is traditional is not necessarily again a bad thing, but it's not on equal footing. In fact, it's a country mile you know, below it. It's scripture that is God's revelation and human tradition, whether those are traditional interpretations or church traditions, may have their place to help our worship, to help us uh, exalt and worship uh, the Lord, but it's not going to be equal footing. And a magisterium is not needed uh, in terms of the only method and means of interpreting God's Word. So the term, uh, when you think about kind of the major premises of the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine and those kind of things, what they, what the Reformers would push back on could be summarized in the solas, right? And so you're talking about the the doctrine of sola scriptura, right? and uh, that the scripture alone is our highest authority, not the scripture, uh, like, new to scriptura, which is like the scripture only, you don't care about what how anyone's interpreted in mm-hmm. the past, what faithful men who have uh, gone before us have thought or said, and it's okay to be totally disconnected from our, you know, rich history as, as Christians. That's not where yeah. you should fall as Certainly a Christian. Certainly not where we fall. It's not yeah. where we fall, yeah. and I don't think it's wise for any Christian sure. to be in that place. So when we talk about sola scriptura, we're saying tradition is not on par with scripture in authority over us. However, tradition is helpful. So we want to make the right decision 
distinction here. There, there right. is a problem with the way the Roman Catholic Church views tradition in terms of authority, but to get rid of all of it outright is is not uh, the proper Protestant position, at least from our perspective. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's a, a good bit on Scripture as as Roman Catholics would uh, address and, and believe about Scripture and the Protestant, um, not only alternative, but opposite understanding of where Revelation comes from and who interprets Scripture and all, all of that. The place Even just the hermeneutics well. of the Protestants, too, mm-hmm. right? That's a big difference, too. Not only are we are Protestants saying, you know, the individual is able to authoritatively, authoritatively interpret the Bible, um, you know, and of course, we have people that study the Word of God to, to make sure we're not just off our rockers, but then informed by really helpful principles of hermeneutics as well. And I think that's a piece that needs to be said, too, is like when we study our Bibles, what keeps us from going off on our own rabbit mm-hmm. trails is like principles like Scripture interpreting Scripture, sure. right? Uh, principles like letting the less clear passages be interpreted by the more clear passages, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, yeah. And then justification, as we get to just what does it mean to be saved and how does one get saved? This is the the matters of the doctrine of justification. And and from the um, Roman Catholic side, they would say that baptism confers grace through a consecrated water, which cleanses people from original sin, regenerates them, and incorporates them into the church. Ooh. In fact, that's a lot. That's a lot. Baptism. A lot gets accomplished. Those are are what multiple categories. Multiple categories, indeed. In fact, uh, yeah, Roman Catholics teach according to their catechism, justification is conferred in baptism. So, so rather than it being um, something that the Christian. Uh, in obedience to Christ, gets in the waters, uh, look, representing their salvation, it, it causes, it's the instrumental cause of your justification. Yeah, it literally is, confers saving grace. That's right. Hmm. And we're going to get into baptism a little later as we come back to the So sacraments. already not the same foundation as what right. the Protestants would hold as the scriptures are seem to be yeah, teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now uh, it's not enti- so. This is uh, this is interesting because many people would say that uh, Catholics teach that you can earn your salvation, or Catholics believe in you know works based salvation. And yeah, you may find someone who teaches that, but the official teaching of Rome is more nuanced than that. Yeah, and it's so not, it's not really fair to say that. You're right. There yeah. are caricatures, and even though we believe there are many things to be concerned about, we don't want to be. Uh, we don't want to fall into some of. We those, want to rightly represent right. their position, even as we disagree with it, and believe it's seriously erroneous, but it's not as simple as that. And you just want to, we want to make sure you understand it. So I'm trying to create that mm-hmm. difference where let's represent it rightly. Right. And we can still disagree with it and disagree with it strongly because it's this really important position. That's right. Um, and, and yet, okay, so baptism being an instrumental cause of justification for the Roman Catholic for the Roman Catholic Church. And here, here, here's a quote: "Since the initiatives belong to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, you can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life." Mm-hmm. So it gets tricky, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. 
So we'll, we'll talk about this, um, but let's let's throw that out there as saying that in some sense, just to know what I think is happening, at least part of the problem is that there's really no, uh, not a strong distinction between justification and sanctification. Right. And so sanctification, their doctrine of sanctification literally merges into their doctrine of justification. And so it's, you won't hear them say faith isn't important. It's necessary. It's necessary. They'll use that language. Right. But necessity. the issue was, is it sufficient? Right. And that was the real doctrinal issue. It wasn't salvation by faith was the problem. What it was really sticking to them was when the reformer said justification by faith alone. Yep. And so with that being said, let's give a little picture into the Protestant perspective on this. Um, so when, from a Protestant perspective, um, and really the question on justification between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics is this, is it is justification a declaration in which God says the sinner is righteous by faith alone, the reformer's perspective, or is justification a kind of a healing process in a sense by which the sinner is made more and more justified, mm. which is the perspective of the Council of Trent. Right. And now within that doctrine of justification, the Catholics are also going to reject the Protestant doctrine of imputed righteousness. And so what we believe in a righteousness that is credited to our account, right? Abraham believed and God credited to him as righteousness. And so the question really becomes, is the righteousness whereby we are forgiven and made right with God, a righteousness working in us, the Roman Catholic view, or a righteousness reckoned to our account. Right. Right? And, and many Christians today would probably even be just trumped by the question. Like, the question itself. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah. I'm kind of confused. I don't even know where people land on this. Well, just to be clear, righteousness working in us is the Catholic pers perspective, and a righteousness reckoned to our account by faith alone is the Protestant perspective. Because, see, according to the Catholic teaching... Um, it's more than God's declaration of our righteousness when we talk when they talk about justification based on Christ's work alone. It's also a renewal of the inner man and reconciliation with God. And even as you heard in the talk about you were saying baptism, they're talking about that alone, cleansing from original sin, regenerating, incorporating them, and justifying them, which are all elements, distinct elements that are all taking place in, for example, um, the actual act of baptism itself. Yeah. So two two scriptures that were paramount for uh, Luther and, and really still are today to this would be, uh, there are more than just these two, but Romans chapter 3 and then Philippians chapter 3, just as examples uh, of why uh, imputed righteousness or what is uh, the, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account or a foreign, sometimes called an alien righteousness mm -hmm. given to us would be places like Romans 3, 21 and following, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then moving on to Philippians chapter 3, Paul is giving his kind of his own testimony uh, for a time before this, but then he says this picking up in verse 9, uh, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. Mm. And so faith is not only necessary to our salvation, it is sufficient. It is faith alone. It is not faith in any work. It is not faith and baptism. It is not faith and you know being in the Catholic Church, for example, any number of things, but it's faith alone in Christ alone. And this, this faith, I'm sorry, this righteousness that comes from God is his free gift of grace, and it's the righteousness of Christ, so that you'll sometimes um, he- hear it talked about like almost this, um, you you don't possess it because it's not inherent within you. No, exactly. It is a gift, but it is a true gift. Like, mm-hmm. it is now mine. It is mine by God's grace, but I stand in the righteousness of Christ as opposed to I'm inherently righteous because of my baptism. I was made righteous, and now the sanctification, justification kind of mishmash gets going with a lot of Roman Catholic teaching. Yeah, that's really good. And there's, uh, there's so really helpful to hear the Protestant position, the biblical position, because you've got the Council of Trent. I think that would speak almost to the opposite of that. And, and so um, in one of the writings, it says this uh, in the Council of Trent, if anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of grace and charity that is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Right. So that is strong language. And again, there's their blending of justification and sanctification. So rather than seeing sanctification as the fruit and justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, as the root, they're going to say sanctification and those charity works and love is part of the root of salvation, of justification. Yep. Yep. So that, that I hope, uh, listener, is helpful to understand while the words justification and the words faith are going to be used, they are used quite differently uh, historically in the Roman Catholic and in Protestant churches. And that's massive, by the way, because right. now we're talking about salvation, right? Right. And when you talk about, do, do, if, if you hold the Roman Catholic position... Now we're talking about messing with the very foundation of your salvation. And if your salvation is built in any way off of your works as your means of being justified with God, you have forfeited the perfect work of Christ on your behalf. Hmm. And that that comes to you only through the instrumental um, gift of faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's actually, this is a really Hmm. important distinction, yeah. and it has huge implications, is my point. Yeah, yeah. Well, to to continue on, another major doctrine will be the doctrine of the church. Um, yes. What is the church? What's the church's authority? The necessity of being in a certain church, like in the Catholic Church, to even be saved? This is kind of what we're getting at here. Uh, and this is a, a quote from uh, Dr. Greg Allison on, on this Christ and church interconnection. Let me read this here. There there are two manifestations of the principle of incarnation. 
and this is from a Roman Catholic perspective, a pattern with which God created the world so that grace and nature would be interdependent. The first manifestation is the incarnation of the Son of God as Jesus Christ, who mediated grace to nature. The second manifestation is the Roman Catholic Church, which, as the prolongation of the incarnation of Christ, continues to mediate grace to nature. The Church is the continuation of God the Son incarnate. That's huge. Let me read it again. The Church, as in the Roman Catholic Church, is the continuation of God the Son incarnate, being whole Christ, deity, humanity, and bodily. Accordingly, the Roman Catholic Church acts as another or second person of Christ, mediating between two realms of nature and grace. Nature being open to grace receives the grace mediated to it by the church. Grace, which must be tangible and concrete, is communicated through the elements of nature consecrated by the church." So this that's, is that's a, a lot. Re- this that's a yeah. big theological yeah. subject, but it's actually really important to understand how things work. So just to give an example of that, mm-hmm. okay, uh, a Catholic bishop consecrates oil to be used in some spiritual purpose, right? Which oil, is like nature, right? Oil is the realm of nature, yeah. And um, but when it's, it's consecrated, is employed, for example, in the sacraments. And we'll talk about these sacraments of confirmation and holy orders, which were two in the Roman are two in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, mediating these sacraments in the place of Christ. The Church concretely confers grace upon those being confirmed and those entering the priesthood. The Christ Church connection is really the second foundation of Catholic theology. It's one of their two major foundations. And so it takes something from nature. When it's consecrated, that thing in nature can confer grace in some measure according to some, you know, directional thing like in the sacraments. And again, we're getting ahead of ourselves to describe confirmation and holy orders, but we will get to the sacraments. But that whole dynamic of nature and grace and that interconnection between the, you know, Christ in the church and then the Roman Catholic Church being the continuation of right. God the Son incarnate makes a lot of sense of how they view the them, themselves as an institution. Yeah, it may it may be described as mystical or, or you know, mysterious, but it, but it's uh, it's real and like you said, it's concrete. It confers that. Um, remind me the Latin phrase uh, ex, op- ex opere operato. Ex opere operato by the works working, worked, right? Yeah. By the works worked. Uh, so the idea being, um, why is it important that you are at, at mass? Why is it important that which is their, their their church service? Why is it important that you baptize babies and that you go through these things? It's because by doing them, the works work, and 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 grace is concretely almost moved or transferred by the act itself with or without maybe the faith operating and, and all of that. And this is, again, uh, one of the big differences um, in Protestant theology to Catholic theology about the church. Yeah, I was thinking such that if you bounce on the Catholic church, you're bouncing on salvation. Well, on Christ himself, because the church and, and Christ, Christ himself. are so... And in, Christ in, himself. It's uh, one and the, the same. It, 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 there is no... Uh, I forget what the saying is, but there is no um, salvation from the Son if you're not involved with the mother, mother church, mother church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so that's that's a. I mean, this is how strong these implications are. Yeah. Um, 
yeah. No, let's, let's talk about the sacraments. Let's there, go, let's so go much, to the sacraments because we, we kind to, of yeah, open yeah. that door a little bit. And there, and are, so. there are seven of them, and we're not going to give them all equal attention, but um, even though that Scripture and justification really are the center of the Reformation and the controversies then and even controversies now, I would say that um, because the Roman Catholic Church claims to be the sole Church of Christ, and you'll hear certain Catholics uh, punt on the strength of that these days, but if you just go back about two generations at, at the most, um, you will find that as the pretty uniform view of the Protestant Church for hundreds of years, that they are the sole Church of Christ, and Protestant assemblies are not real churches, and their seven sacraments um, are uh, to all be upheld, and of course, well, not of course, but Protestants would say that there are there are two sacraments, and we'll get there in a moment, but sacraments um, are really at the heart of, of the Church. These are elements of nature. This that, is that nature-grace yes, dynamic again. That right? when consecrated and administered by the hierarchy, by a priest, by a bishop, right? These things, they, they transmit grace. And the seven sacraments were, were fixed um, from the time of Lyon in 1274 through Florence in 1431, and then very importantly in Trent, 1545 and following. And so they have had for hundreds of years these seven sacraments. And the seven sacra sacraments, essentially, one way to see it is they correspond to the seven stages of life. Yes. So baptism for the initial stage, right? And then you have confirmation into young adulthood. You've got the marriage in adulthood, extreme unction at the end of life, and then three special graces that offer divine assistance for living in the world. So ho holy orders or ordination, penance, and then the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to deal with a, a few of them in particular because they are uh, really important to understand and where there's such significant um, divergence from the Protestant position, or I should say the Protestants you know, made such a distinction. Of course, the Protestants, like you said, have two, they believe, are biblically established sacraments Baptism and baptism communion. And communion. Right. But let's talk about the baptism yeah. view of the Roman Catholics. We've already kind of opened that door mm -hmm. through the salvation piece, mm -hmm. but what about this sacrament do we need to know more about? Well, the grace given at baptism is the grace of regeneration, mm -hmm. so that when a person, or particularly, again, infant baptism being so common and popular, that infant is born again of the Spirit, and the disposition of his or her soul is changed, leaving him justified in the sight of God. And this is that idea of righteousness being infused. Versus imputed. Versus imputed, infused and poured into the soul. And so in, in Roman Catholic theology, um, uh, baptism is, is the prerequisite. Really, it's the instrumental cause of justification. Contra faith as the instrumental cause mm -hmm. of justification. Mm -hmm. They're still going to say faith is necessary, mm -hmm. but not sufficient. Baptism is that instrumental cause. Um, a baptized person, though, in the Catholic Church is not perfectly sanctified. They still have um, this this thing called uh, concu concupiscence, yeah. uh, uh, which is an inclination or disposition towards sin, uh, which is why baptized people will still sin, but concupiscence is not itself sin, they say. The Reformers would come back and say, no, anything that is a temptation towards sin, an inclination towards sin, is itself sin. It's a part of our 
our sin nature. But that, So that's a divergence there. Mortal sins, if you're familiar with Catholic Church and theology, mortal sins is one thing that will often come up. These are the type of sins that, listen, destroy the justifying grace given to you at baptism. Uh-oh. And it makes it necessary for a person to be justified again. That That's really, really important. And so some of the fears that come with, if I sin in a certain way that qualifies as a mortal sin, I am compromising. I am and if I die in the that root, state. Right. Yeah. Severing the root of, of justification, my yeah. own justification, um, versus venial sins, which are ones that you can make penance for and don't have the significant effect that a mortal sin does. So think yeah. of more serious sins of which there are categories for that. And so baptism is is a major point of contention between the Protestant position and the Roman Catholic view in general. Um, and just briefly, one reason why when we talk with people about being baptized and they say, I was baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church, we just compassionately, but very forwardly, would say, when you became a Christian, you, you need to be baptized. Yeah. And so whether that was years ago, and now we're having that conversation, and, and this is why this is a, this is, we would argue, from a Protestant, I think, biblical position, that's a false belief. Yeah. That, that did, the thing that they say happened in your infant baptism did not happen in the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and so um, we would call them to be baptized as believers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the Eucharist, and um, they, they would call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Eucharist is like Thanksgiving, Lord's Supper, um, communion uh, is, is another name for it, the source and summit of the Christian life, and that it gives, mm. it, it, here's where the grace and nature come together, so the bread and the wine, right? Um, when consecrated for the Lord's Supper... Uh, those elements of nature of the bread and the wine are literally transubstantiated or transformed in its substance into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is obviously one of those more prominent Mm -hmm. views of the Roman Catholics. And so the elements are offered as literally as a sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the Eucharist at the Lord's Supper, uh, not just a remembrance, but in a sense, an extending of the atoning work. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, right, right. So that kind of idea, and um, and even the Catechism of the Catholic Church would say it like this: "Quote the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Eucharist is truly propitiatory." Wow, and so that's obviously going to violate. Are you going to Hebrews? Yep, that's going to violate um, a couple passages in Hebrews that you know are very concerning. For example, Hebrews ten twelve through fourteen. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all single single offering he mm-hmm. has perfected those for all 
uh, for all time, those who are being sanctified. And while there's a lot said there, the, the center of that is the single sacrifice. And so... Um, Not meaning single, continuing on, because I think that's what their defense would be. Yes. Single but, but, as but in a, one. But a single on the cross that Friday when he died, that was the single sacrifice. It is over. He, he's also, he's resurrected, and so the work he accomplished in the cross uh, was um, vindicated and validated, and God the Father's stamp of approval upon Jesus' resurrection, death shall not hold him, that sacrifice is done and gone, it's, it, it is finished. And yet, in transubstantiation uh, uh, theory, I would say, they are, um, they are basically re-sacrificing again uh, Christ. And so th- this was so repugnant uh, uh, to the, the Reformers as um, they came to study their Bibles and see more and more that while we would not merely say, uh, you know, um, nothing important is happening in, in communion, right? There, there's not a—we um, treat communion with reverence, and it is a, a very important uh, a command of Christ to celebrate in the Church, but it is not doing the transubstantiated work, becoming, in a literal sense, the body and blood of Christ. Love it. Let's do penance. <laughs> Just there's so much here. Yeah, I know, um, right? There's there, yeah. Let's do penance, um, and we'll go to and we'll maybe let's close it out here okay. for the sake of time for this podcast, yeah. and we'll we'll come back and try to hit a few things in the second episode. Yep. But penance, another sacrament uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, is another conferring of grace through certain signs and good works, thereby absolving the faithful of their sin and restoring them to salvation. Sure. Penance is a big, big yeah. deal. And um, man, this was, uh, in some sense, the very center of the issue that sparked the Protestant Reformation. So you had, um, you had Martin Luther on the scene uh, and why am I blanking on the, uh, the gentleman's name right now who was selling um, indulgences as a, as a part of this? Tetzel, thank you. And so you had you, you had the Roman Catholic Church saying Tetzel was in the wrong, uh, and yet the 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 heir that was for Martin Luther was seeing not only penance as uh, um, uh, not an accurate view biblically, but also the selling of these indulgences, which is how someone would be absolved, right? And so penance has been regarded as the second plank of justification for those who had made shipwreck of their souls, right? Mortal sins can be overcome or forgiven through penance, which is when the priest says that he absolves you and and he has the authority, not just in the name of Jesus, I announce that you were forgiven. That wasn't the issue. A minister today, you and I, Scott, should give confirmation and assurance to those who are coming, repenting of their sins, and we should say, you are forgiven, but it's not my authority that makes you forgiven. It's the authority of Christ that I am assuring you of biblically. According to the Word of According God. According to the Word of God, you are forgiven, yeah. not on my word, but on God's word. And yet, in penance, the priest had this authority to say that he absolved the Christian who was uh, dealing with, again, shipwreck of their faith and mortal sins. He had the power to do it. Would you say it was more mediatorial in a sense? Right. And so... Taking the place of Christ, who is the one mediator. Right, the one mediator, 1 Timothy 2, right? Between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Yeah. So that piece of it is as well. It just really plays that up. Now, there's three dimensions to penance that were essential. Contrition over sin. Right. Okay? Confession, and then satisfaction. 
And, and all of those had to be, for, sacra- for the sacrament to be complete, it was necessary for the penitent believer to do works of satisfaction, which satisfied the demands of God's justice. And so now, even in the act of penance and the sacrament of penance, you're mm-hmm. working through some pieces where it seems like you're leaning into Jesus Lane, whose work on the cross was, was satisfactory <laughs> and satisfactory. Yeah in terms of the demands of God's justice. So contrition over sin and a confession of sin, yes and amen, but you performing works of satisfaction to do enough, and this is where you get into uh, uh, saying your Hail Marys and saying your Our Fathers, and as we've said, just not enough time to go into all of this, but when when you hear that, someone is performing works of satisfaction. Now, what, what's, what's an indulgence, though? An indulgence is a transfer of merit in order to gain heaven. It, it, a person must have sufficient merit in, in their soul to gain heaven. So if they die lacking sufficient merit, so the Roman Catholic theology goes, if they die lacking sufficient merit, they go where? They go to purgatory, known as the purging place. It's not hell, but it's where somebody could spend anywhere from minutes to centuries in purgatory because there was merit that needed to be made up for or earned in that spiritual place. And the Roman Catholics came to believe that they had the power to give merit to those who lacked it, who were dead already, to shorten their time in purgatory. Now, where do you get that idea, Scott? You get this idea, it's called supererogation. These are, get this, these are works that were more meritorious than God required, such as a martyr dying for their faith or somebody sacrificing their life for someone, like grand works of merit, that it's like if you needed 70 merits, certain saints had performed 150 merits. They can give some to you. Those 80 leftover merits, uh, the Catholic Church had the ability somehow to calculate what that was and then to take the the um the over-the-top saint who overperformed, they could take those merits and apply them to the dead in purgatory. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this 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 uh, what's called the treasury of merit. And maybe nothing is more repugnant to the Protestant then, and I would hope now, than the treasury of merit being anything other than the all-sufficient merit of Christ. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about a treasury of merit, let's talk about Christ's Mm -hmm. merit given to us, not the treasury of merit from, again, saints that like reached their limit and then topped it off with extra merit, and the Mm -hmm. church can then dole it out. And this is where you had Tetzel selling indulgences because people could do their Hail Marys, Mm -hmm. or they could do Our Fathers, or they could pay. They could help build uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in the early 16th century, late 15th, early 16th century. They could give money on behalf of their dead relatives to help pay for St. Peter's Cathedral. And even though the Roman Catholic Church said Tetzel was was wrong, this is where it led, that a priest was selling indulgences to give them for the sake of the dead, and, and this just got to be such an absolute mess. But the abomination of the treasury of merit and the church believing they could, uh, again, calculate what that is and then pass it out for the dead relatives of others is just mm. atrocious. And the Protestants rightly called it out and rightly um, understood that it was almost like that was a thread 
because and and as, the more they pulled, uh, the more they were seeing just how unbiblical the structure was. Mm. Not just this one thing, but one thing to another, to the sacraments, to the papacy, to the all, all not not necessarily all of it, but so much of it. The structure was um, unbiblical. Mm. Yeah, and of course, what is sitting there in such plain light in the scriptures is that this is basically taking the place of Christ's infinite merit, right? Right, granted to us through his life, death, and resurrection, right? And received by faith alone. His merit is sufficient for us. There, there is no, it, it, it undermines in such a significant way that we can somehow do more, right? To make our own selves right than Christ did, like Christ gets us started, but we we contribute in some way. It's a, yeah. it's a it's a pretty devastating uh, position. Yeah, uh, maybe the the sole thing about the papacy would be papal infallibility. Uh, just to again, um, the Pope's at the heart of the church. First the, of all, the Pope is the supreme authority of the church, and the idea of papal infallibility is not really all that old in a defined way. Uh, Vatican I, 1870, is really seen as where it got. I wouldn't say it so much got created as much as it got defined mm-hmm. very clearly that when uh, the Roman pontiff or the pope is speaking in a manner called ex cathedra, mm-hmm. that he is in the off- he's in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, which is an erroneous thing we would have an issue with, but that's how they see the Pope. When he's speaking ex cathedra, so it doesn't mean every opinion as he's driving around from one place to another, being driven around, I'm sure, or going around the world, like he's always speaking in this way, but when he is consciously speaking in the exercise of his office, he is speaking the word of God, that it is binding, it's authoritative, and this 1870 to now, I'm not actually sure how many popes have uh, been, been successful but this would be one pope to another, not just one guy, but each pope has the uh, the authority to speak in a manner ex cathedra that is uh, in From. the very word. It's very, very word of God. Yeah. It's as authoritative right. as Peter, Paul, James, John, Matthew. It is the word of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, Wow, that is a quick little overview of the Pope. <laughs> and then, I mean, if, for those who those who can hear this can clearly understand. We not only we, because who cares if it's just us? But the Protestant reformers were very dogmatic, as we are still today, to say uh, this uh, is one of the most outrageous claims that one person would have sole authority over the worldwide church. First of all, other than Jesus, he is the head of the church, Christ, uh, and, it, and it's not a man, especially men who one man. Died Another one gets risen up to be Pope, and now the ability to speak with uh, the infallible authority of God's very word uh, would be the clear Protestant response of there is one head of the church, his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in the Roman Catholic, you know, Vatican I versus Vatican II, Vatican II tends to take a different tone, right, mm-hmm. um, across the board, but but even in some of this stuff. And so we're going to talk about that in the second episode. Yeah. Be able to get into the Mary stuff a little bit. I think some people are like, "Hey, you did a whole episode and you didn't even get into Mary. That's right. Like, how? Like, are you guys missing it?" And um, we're trying to figure out how to balance the content here. And yeah. so, forgive us as we have um, tried to get at the major things, and we left Mary intentionally because of this. There's a lot of questions that have come in. 
wanting answers to Mary-related issues. And so we are just going to keep that doctrinal component for episode two, leave you on the edge of your seat, so you'll want to come back for that. And um, we will get into some of the modern-day kind of senses and, and, and different components of Roman Catholicism today, how to evangelize, um, and then answer a bunch of your questions. Yeah, so so much more to come. Uh, you're going to see a couple of show notes, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, just a, a couple of links uh, to books and, and audio resources that can give you just hours of content. If this is new to you or you need some clear and concise ways of uh, learning and so that you can address, so that you can minister, so that you can talk more confidently with a Catholic who may try to meet you on their territory. No, we believe in justification, and we believe faith is necessary, and we believe these things. There are so many differences in what they mean by uh, uh, the definitions that they use, and that's an unfortunate reality, and it is hard out there. And so we're going to address that in episode two. We appreciate you hanging with us, and we will see you next time. You've been listening to Doxologic, a podcast by Doxa Church in Rockland, California. To learn more, visit us online at doxa.church.